Uh, so if you guys will open your Bibles or if you're using the YouVersion app to follow along, we're going to go ahead and read our text for tonight. I'm going to pause for just a second. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, now I'm going to pause for just a second because anytime therefore is there, you're supposed to ask what it is there for, right? Because it is to follow on what was discussed previously um, because there are implications for the things that were said. In light of the supremacy of Jesus, because of the supremacy of Jesus, we find verse 1. It says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. See, this first verse right here is kind of the core. If you tune me out for the rest of the night, please just hear that one thing that he says, that we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let's continue on. For since this message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, who while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere in Psalm chapter 8. Um, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, I mean, God's word is always good. But if you guys are like me, sometimes the author of Hebrews is a little confusing. And I read that many, many times. I'm like, okay, like, God, like, what is it that you're trying to tell me? Because I'm kind of confused. And hopefully we can wade through this together and find some application that makes some sense, right? Because he's talking about the angels like he did before, but then he was talking about being careful lest you drift away. And, and he's, he's talking about the, the proof that God has given us. Um, so what are we supposed to do with it? What are we supposed to take with it? Now let's go back to verse 1 again. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it makes me uncomfortable. It's a verse of hot topic and debate because it talks about drifting away. What exactly does that mean to drift away? Um, I love the Bible Project. Their videos are awesome if you're like, oh, I'm kind of intimidated by the Bible. That's a great place to start. Um, it's one of the first places that I turn to when I'm reading a text because it helps give me a bird's eye view of what's happening. And the Bible Project had this to say. The point of the warnings is to make you uncomfortable because the rejection of Jesus is serious. So if verse 1 makes you uncomfortable, it's because that's what the author intended. When he says you need to be careful lest you drift away, it was because he wanted to make people uncomfortable because they need to pay attention to the things that he is saying. So I said that verse 1 is really important, and he talks about we need to pay closer attention to what we have heard. Well, what have we heard? What is it that he's talking about? And when it talks about that there, this is this reliable message that we can't drift away from, and he talks later in verse 3 about such a great salvation that we can't neglect, I think what the author is talking about, this message that is superior to the message of the angels that Jesus gave, is the gospel. And when I say the gospel, what do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus was fully man and fully God, and that he became the punishment for us so that we could have restored relationship with God. 
I believe that it's talking about his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his eventual return. This is the gospel, and I think it's what the author here is saying. You need to pay closer attention lest we drift away. See, the point of Hebrews is to elevate Jesus as superior and to challenge the believers to remain faithful. But how are we supposed to do that? And later throughout the years we go through Hebrews, you're going to find that this is the first of five warnings that the author gives. Now, all of Hebrews is really good, but I think that these five warnings are pretty pivotal, pretty crucial, pretty important. So why does the author tell them to pay closer attention to the message of the gospel? Why is he writing, lest they drift away? And what does that have to do with us? And I think the encouragement is he's telling them, hang on. Stand firm. It's worth it. Even though it's hard, and even though from your immediate perspective, your limited perspective, it may seem that it's not worth it, I promise you that it is. And maybe you ask, so how does this fit with me? Like, I feel like I'm doing okay. Are you guys familiar with, like, what it's like to have this summer drift? Maybe you end the school year with your routine, and you're really good, and you're super solid, and then all of a sudden you come to August, and you've barely cracked your Bible right? Or you had all of these really great ambitions to read and to pray and to spend this time in intentional fellowship, and you're actually in a spiritually anemic position at the end of the summer. Or perhaps you so strongly desire to fit in with the people that you're around that you maybe hold back or that you're not pressing into the things that you, you need to or that you should because it's intimidating or you don't want people to ostracize you or to mock you. Or you guys are adults, and you have all this freedom, and your parents aren't waking you up to go to church, and they're not telling you the things that you have to do. And it's not because they're trying to be bossy and domineering, hopefully, most of the time, um, but because they want your spiritual good, right? Maybe that, if that's the home that you came from, and you've got this freedom, you're like, I don't have to if I don't want to, which is true, but is it maybe not best for you spiritually because you find yourself becoming more spiritually dehydrated for not pressing into these opportunities to grow and deepen your faith? Or I'm the boss of my life. You can't tell me what to do. Or um, maybe it's that you are just busy and distracted, not necessarily with bad things, right? But sometimes the end of our day, we're like, oh, you know, I haven't even really said hi to God yet today. Uh, but he'll understand. Like, he knows what I'm about and what I'm doing. These are real thoughts, and it's real situations, and they're not always inherently toxic. It's good to do well at school, and it's good to invest in relationships, but sometimes these decisions, when they happen over a long period of time, or in some cases if they happen at all, they can be a precursor to a trajectory that you maybe didn't even plan to take. And maybe it started as something simple and it can end in a much bigger, more intense destination than you intended on. And so when the author says, pay closer attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away, I think it's important that we listen to what he has to say. Now I'm going to pivot for just a second um, and talk about my first car. Um, my husband, his first car was like an old grandpa Buick boat kind of thing, and I don't even remember how long it lasted because he was on another car uh, by the time we were together. For me personally, it was a 1995 Mazda Protégé, um, and it was white, and I called it a stormtrooper because it looked like a stormtrooper, um, and it ran really well when I first got it, and, but then eventually, like, this thing happened, and, like, my tailpipe rusted through and fell off, so it sounded like I had glass packs on my car. Like, I sounded really, really cool coming um, because it was so loud. But the problem is the exhaust would kind of like filter into the car. 
And so when I would go less than 45 miles an hour, I had to roll my windows down so that I didn't like kill myself, right? Um, and I forgot that wasn't normal because I got so used to, okay, I'm going slower, I'm rolling up to a stop sign, roll down my windows, and then, okay, I'm leaving now, roll up my windows, until it's like January, right? And there's like snow outside, or it's raining, and somebody notices that I'm rolling down my windows, like, what are you doing? Why are you rolling down your windows? It's raining, or it's winter. I'm like, oh, because I don't want us to die. Um, but rather than use that as a moment where like, maybe I should get that fixed, I was like, I'll just roll down my window, it's fine, it's fine. Um, and then fast forward into my freshman year of college, um, I was from a rural town in Tennessee. I grew, across, uh, grew up across the street from a soybean or cotton field, depending on the alternating of the fields. All my rural farm people, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and I, I went to college in St. Louis, right? So like, this is me finding adulthood, finding my feet, like adventure in the city. And when I'm driving my car, and like, it was like a 30-minute drive to where the church that I was serving at in school, sometimes like... I could like feel the car like shuddering while it shifted. And like for those of you that know cars, you know that's not a good thing, right? But I didn't know cars, and so I was like, eh, it'll be fine. Like it seems to shake it off, right? That's not what cars do. Um, so I didn't get it looked at, right? Like I occasionally would change my oil. Maybe I didn't do it as often as I should, because, you know. Um, anyway, so there is some things that were happening with my car that I maybe should have paid attention to, but I didn't. And then there was this one day that I was about to turn onto the road to get to my school, and it just, and it would go nowhere, and it would do absolutely nothing. And so I had to call somebody, and they towed it, and they're like, hey, your transmission's shot, and the transmission is worth more than your car. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, is there any way I can get like, money for it, like for scrap? And he was like, no. So I had like ignored some things that maybe were really important or maybe weren't initially super important but then became really important for so long that I was left with like a scrap of junk um, at the end. And so then I had to get a new car and then the money that I should have spent towards repairs went to a payment that lasted longer than the paying for the repairs would have. But see, th that's the important thing about dashboard lights, right? You should pay attention to them because when that check engine light pops on on your car, it means something, right? Or when you can tell that something's not functioning as it's supposed to, you should maybe take it somewhere to get looked at or at least ask somebody about it, right? Or if I know that exhaust is pouring into my car, I shouldn't just ignore that and continue rolling down my windows and like hope that the fresh air is going to be fine. I should maybe get that looked at. But because I ignored things for so long, the damage became a lot more costly. And then Stormtrooper, rip. So tonight, I want to talk about dashboard lights for drifting in our faith. And there are four dashboard lights that I want to bring to your attention from Hebrews chapter 2. And the first one, I think, I would call apathy towards the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 1, let's read it again. It says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. See, apathy, it is indifference. It is the same lukewarm attitude that John warned the early churches about in Revelation. I'm going to read to you real quickly Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So why is this an issue? Why is apathy towards the gospel an issue? So you pay attention to the things that you care about and to what matters to you, right? And if your classes matter to you, you pay attention to them. 
If a relationship matters to you, you pay attention to it. Guys, if the gospel matters to us, then we will pay attention to it. To be apathetic about the gospel is to be indifferent about the sacrifice of Jesus and its implications for your life. Because yes, it does sometimes uncomfortably call you to live intentionally, but because the gospel matters, the message matters, we cannot afford to be apathetic about it. So why would we do that? Why, why would we let ourselves be apathetic about the gospel? Because I don't think most of us go like, sign me up for apathy, right? Um, but I think that caring can be exhausting and it can be hard and it can be inconvenient because sometimes it means staying up a little later to spend some time in the Word or getting up a little earlier or saying no to Netflix or Paramount Plus or Disney Plus, insert, you know, whatever, or social media this or gaming this or you know, whatever hobby or activity, this sometimes it means postponing those things to make more of God in his word. But see, here's the thing. Jesus was exhausted on our behalf too, and he did hard things, and certainly dying on the cross wasn't convenient. And I say that not to be harsh, but because what he did is worth us doing hard things too. So apathy towards the gospel, I think, is a dashboard light. A second dashboard light is carelessness with the gospel. Let's read verses 2 through 4 again. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The gospel of Jesus is a valuable and costly thing, and was even of more value than the respected and treasured messages of the angels that we talked about. So the author was warning them against ignoring and undervaluing it. If Jesus was superior to the angels, then his message had to have been superior to theirs. Therefore, we need to pay attention. He also specifically warns against neglecting such a great salvation. We should care about the gospel in easy times and also in trying times. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30, talks about walking worthy and not carelessly. If you guys will read along and follow with me. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent. So Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, and he's like, it shouldn't matter whether I'm there with you or not. You guys should walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. I may hear of you that you are standing firm. I love how many times I've been seeing for the past six months the phrase standing firm appearing in Scripture over and over and over again. And if it's repeated, it means it's important. And if I'm seeing it like in every book that I've been cracking for the past six months, I think God's trying to tell us something, right? Standing firm. And then I lost my spot. In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul's saying, it's not easy for me, it's not easy for, it wasn't easy for Christ, and it's not going to be easy for you all the time, but it is worth it to stand firm and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The salvation of Jesus is worthy of our attention. Maybe if I hadn't ignored some of the warning signs of my Mazda and that it was falling apart, it may have lasted a little bit longer, but I was careless with my car, and there were consequences for that. I think a third dashboard light is animosity towards the gospel. Now, so in these verses, these same verses, two through four, I think that we see seeds of this dashboard light of animosity. See, God provided these signs and these wonders and these miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit 
Yet then and even now, the message of Jesus sometimes causes anger. And, and sometimes, even though there's this evidence for it, because it's invasive in people's lives, they don't want to hear it. See, there is a choice with what to do about our anger because sometimes I don't like what Jesus has to say. And it doesn't make me feel ooey-gooey and happy because, like, conviction is uncomfortable. But we have a choice with what we do with that, right? We can either press in or we can pull away. See, I think some of these early church believers, these, these Jewish believers, they didn't necessarily like some of the things that Jesus said and the implications for their lives. And sometimes it may not have fit with their worldview. Sometimes it may not fit with our worldview. And we're like, okay, Jesus, I know you said that, but this is kind of how I feel about these cultural issues, right? And instead of pressing into Jesus as the plumb line of truth, sometimes they ignored the dashboard and had a faith crisis instead. See, there's a lot of people that I've known, and, and it's been so heartbreaking to see because at once their faith mattered to them, but as their worldview shifted and changed because the measuring stick that they used was not something that was eternal and unchanging, but it was something that was shifting because it was something that was in flux, then they had a crisis of faith. And for many, this starts as faith deconstruction or deconstructionism. And for many, those seeds of deconstructionism leads for them to walk away from the gospel. Okay, so what is deconstructionism? It's a big word. Maybe we hear about it talked all the time. Maybe it's something that you've talked about and debated with people. Maybe it's a place that you find yourself, whether you know it or not. And there's an article from Desiring God um, by John Bloom, and I'm going to read you guys an excerpt from this because I thought it was really good. Because um, see, some deconstruct doctrine, and some deconstruct or take apart Christianity. But essentially... Deconstruction is a critical dismantling of a person's understanding of what it means to be an evangelical Christian. A significant number of those who formerly professed an evangelical faith use deconstruction to describe their departure from Christianity altogether. Deconstruction is a process. Deconversion is a result. And it's only one possible result because others go through the deconstruction process and that results in a strengthened and invigorated faith. Is it okay to have questions? Yes. Is it okay to challenge some ideas and some traditions? Yes, absolutely. Is it okay to examine things that you always thought to be true? Yes, but what is your measuring stick and what is your plumb line? Because if you're trying to take these things apart and you're comparing it to something else, and I like to use, you know, like, our feet are all different sizes, right? And if I tell you guys that, like, oh, you need to do such and such that's about one foot length, like, it's going to be different depending on whose shoe you grab, right? You need something that is constant and unchanging, and God and his word are constant and unchanging. And so as you start to look at and take things apart, you need to measure against the thing that is not changing. So what makes the difference between something that causes a crisis of faith or a deepening of faith? Now, I could pop the hood of my car, and I could look at it and stare at it all day, but that's not going to make me know better what I'm looking at, right? And I can also call a friend that equally knows nothing about mechanics to confirm that I see nothing wrong with my car, and it's going to be fine. That doesn't make it fine, right? I need to call somebody, or I should have called somebody that was a mechanic, or taken it to someone that had the ability to run the proper diagnostics. And if it was beyond their ability to repair, to point me to a place that could take care of the repair. Instead of self-diagnosing the issue, to turn to people and resources that could help me. 
In 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, it says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So he says, stay firm. Like, don't drift. It's going to be tempting because people are going to want to have people confirm their thoughts and theories because it makes them feel better about where they stand, so they're going to intentionally seek out people that are going to confirm their own perspective. Carefully consider where you turn. And the gospel can stand in the face of your criticism and anger. God's word can stand in the face of your questions and your study. God is not going to change regardless of your opinions. But I have to caution you as a dashboard light that a bitter heart and a resentful soul, these dashboard lights of animosity towards the gospel must be addressed because this animosity towards God and his word is a fast track to drifting. So the fourth dashboard light, the final dashboard light, is compromising on the gospel. See, the gospel is uncomfortable for them then, and it's uncomfortable for us now, and honestly, it should make us uncomfortable, and if it doesn't, then let's chat, because I can point you to some things that'll make you uncomfortable in the gospel. And maybe not when you're like hanging out with your Christian friends, it's not always going to make you feel uncomfortable, but when the position or worldview that you have is in opposition to those around you, you might find that it's a little easier to just kind of agree and go along with others. When you stand alone, it's hard. It's not a fun place to be. And because it becomes hard and uncomfortable, it's tempting to make compromise or to try to sanitize the gospel. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't need you to sanitize the gospel. It's sufficient on its own. Jesus is the one that makes us clean, not the other way around, right? We don't have to make his word or his message clean. So what are some ways I think that we might be tempted to sanitize the gospel, to compromise? Some of these are big ways. Some of these are little it would be a lot easier if we said, you know what, hell is not an actual place. It's just something we experience here on earth. But then what are we saved from? And then God's telling all kinds of lies all throughout scripture. Or what about when we say there's more than one way to heaven? He doesn't really mean that like not everybody's going to go to heaven because that's uncomfortable. Or what about something as simple as it's okay that I don't actually like open my Bible myself because I go to church and that's fine. It's sufficient. Try just drinking water once a week. I don't think it'll be real healthy. But. Or this, this particular sin isn't a big deal because at least it's not this. Like at least it's just this little bit over here and it's going to be okay. It's not a huge deal because it's not that, right? Or Jesus can stay out of my sex life. Or Jesus can stay out of my sexuality. Or Jesus can stay away from my money. Or Jesus can stay away from my free time, right? Because we often tell ourselves those things. And honestly, guys, I think that those are compromises of the gospel, because he wants everything, not just the little tiny pieces um, that we want to give him. So let's read verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing out of his control. Um, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him because just FYI, we're not omnipresent and omniscient. We don't know everything, see everything. We're not everywhere. Um, so we may not see it now, but he has full authority. We see him for a little while. He was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death 
for everyone. Now, Nick talked in depth last week, so if you want to hear more about the angels and Jesus being higher than the angels and stuff, and you weren't here last week, then hop on our YouTube channel, um, Spotify something, and listen um, to his sermon. It was fantastic. But see, we're tempted to compromise the gospel in several different ways, and I think the first is with the humanity of Jesus. Um, And he talked about how some of the, the early believers were tempted to compromise in that way too. But the author put pretty plainly that Jesus was fully man. And if we say that he's not, what does it do for the gospel? Well, he couldn't have been the substitute for the sin sacrifice if he wasn't fully man, because he wouldn't have been one of us, right? Or it's tempting to compromise on the authority of Jesus, Uh, But it says in Hebrews 1 that he was the exact imprint of God. And if we don't see everything in subjection to him yet, that doesn't mean uh, that he doesn't have that authority or that power. It just means that we have a limited perspective and view. So what does that do to the gospel? Well, he couldn't have had the power to defeat death and to defeat sin if he didn't have the authority. We're tempted to compromise on the sacrifice of Jesus. For a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels, and he suffered death, in verse 9, so that we might taste his grace. And without the sacrifice of Jesus, there's no justice, and there's no settling of sin to be able to restore the relationship between us and God. Those are things that we can't compromise on. Okay, so we've talked about these four compromises, but then what do we do? What do we do with these dashboard lights to prevent drifting in our faith? And I think the first one is we have to just watch for the warning lights. Like, it means that sometimes you have to look at the dashboard. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, Be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Is he being sexist? No. Okay. Um, But I think he's telling us, like, put on your armor and do battle. Like, come on. Like, stand with confidence and boldness and with courage. Watch for the warning lights. It means that you have to look at the dashboard once in a while. Spiritually, it means that you have to check on your health. Are you in God's word? Okay, are you actually applying it to your life? Or are you just looking at it and then walking away and making no change or transformation? If you're not really sure where to go, maybe consider plugging into the discipleship program that they're getting ready to kick off. Sign up for that. Or if you want to walk with somebody else through that process, maybe consider that. Are you praying? Uh, I know I'm guilty of this sometimes too. I'm going to be praying for you. But do you actually, like, are you actually doing that and spending some time talking to God? Are you surrounding yourself with healthy believers? Now, I mean, it's okay to be friends with a variety of people, but not just with social Christians or status Christians or fun Christians. Now, it's okay to be a, like, I'm public about my faith on social media. And it's okay to, like, this is my status. This is how I describe myself and introduce myself. And it's okay to be a Christian that has fun. I like fun. But you can't only be those things, right? There has to be this authentic core. Are you intentional about making some faith conversations with people? See, watch for these warning lights on the dashboard. And then listen to what the warning lights are telling you. I could obviously hear that my muffler rusted off, but I didn't do anything about it other than occasionally roll down my windows. And that was not sufficient for the health of my vehicle. So when you notice that you are growing apathetic about the gospel or that you're acting careless with the gospel or that you have animosity towards the gospel or that you're making and accepting compromises about the gospel, it is time to course correct and do something differently. It's time to ask for help. It's time to turn to God and his word and to your Christian community. And then the third thing, because if you're like, I'm good on that, like me, me and God, we're good. Okay, well, this is getting a little uncomfortable too. Point out graciously 
through context of relationship, the warning lights that you see on someone else's dash. Nobody likes a backseat driver. However, sometimes their presence and their speaking up can prevent a disaster. Sometimes we get so used to seeing the dashboard lights or rolling down the windows as I come to a stop that I forget that that's not normal. And then someone's like, hey, <laughs> shouldn't you get that looked at? Like, shouldn't you take care of that? Shouldn't you address that? Is your flesh showing more than your Jesus? Are you willing to talk to people whose flesh is showing more than their Jesus? See, these early Jewish believers, they were weary and discouraged, and for some pretty legitimate reasons. But the author did not want them to drift in their situations. He wanted them to pay closer attention. And so he is saying, here is a dashboard light. I am telling you that the gospel is significant and worthy of your attention. And I know that it is hard, but stand firm and stay the course. And tonight, guys, I want to tell you, like the author did to the early church, I want to ask you to pay closer attention to the gospel so that you don't drift. I want to encourage you to hold on because it's worth it and stand firm. Will you guys pray with me? God, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for your faithfulness to us, even when sometimes we're faithless. And God, I ask that you would help us to really pay attention to the dashboard lights in our life, um, that we would be receptive when people try to point them out to us, um, instead of defensive, as is natural to do. Um, God, that our hearts would be soft in your hands. And God, I, I also just pray, if there's people that just don't have any idea what we're talking about, because they're not walking in that relationship with you, God, that they would ask questions, um, and that you would draw them to yourself. God, I pray that we would be confident for the sake of the gospel, that we would follow the example of Christ in that way, and be willing to do hard things, um, because it's right and good and true. It's the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray.